Hey there, welcome to Hunt Gather Talk. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and this week we are going to go through some questions from listeners and readers of Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. We're going to talk about a bunch of different concepts today, everything ranging from the idea of Chinese master stock and how you can use it in your own kitchen, to what the heck do you do with venison ribs, to what the heck do you do with freezer-burned whatever? Um, I get that question a lot about freezer-burned meat. And I get asked about what cuts to use for jerky. I also want to talk about the concept of char, of not necessarily browning, but burning in food. It is a fundamental concept in Mexican cooking, and I want to talk to you about it so you can use this idea in your own cooking, no matter what kind of cuisine you choose to cook. And finally, I want to talk a little bit about gear. I got asked about what sort of kitchen gear that I use all the time and what will help you make recipes not only in Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, but also any sort of dish that you choose to make. So here we go. Let's start with a quick question. Which cuts do you use if you're going to make jerky? Jerky can be made in a couple of ways, and one of them I am a recent convert to. And that is the ground meat jerky. The ground meat jerky obviously is done with ground meat. To make ground meat jerky, you need a special device called a jerky gun. Now, you don't have to have the jerky gun, but it really, really helps to own one. Uh, mine is from Western Products, and it works really well. And there are other companies that make them too. What a jerky gun is is essentially it's a caulking gun made with food-grade materials, and it has a special nozzle on it that allows you to squeeze out little bars of meat goodness. Um, the way to do this if you don't have a jerky gun is to have your meat ground and spread it out on a sheet that you can dehydrate on. So I use an Excalibur dehydrator, with nine trays in it. And on these trays, there are these air permeable mats that go over the grate. And that is an excellent thing to stick your jerky onto. If you did not have a jerky gun, you would spread your meat mixture out very thinly on these mats. And then once it's dried, you would cut them into little bars. The concept, if you've never had ground meat jerky, is a lot like the tonka bar. And the tonka bar, uh, I believe it is an invention of a company based on the Lakota Sioux up in the Dakotas. It is a modern pemmican, and pemmican is an ancient mixture of that the Native Americans made of meat and fat and berries and such like that, and it's the ultimate trail food. I like them a lot, and there's going to be a Tonka Bar reverse-engineered ground meat jerky recipe in Buck Buck Moose. So... Buck Muck Moose, if you have not heard about it, is going to be my next cookbook, and it comes out in September, and you can, <laughs> you'll be able to get it wherever fine books are sold. But for now, you can reserve a copy on Amazon. That is ground meat turkey. Uh, I can go into it a little bit more detail some other day. I just wanted to touch on it because the question I got was, what cuts of meat do you use for regular jerky? Now, regular jerky is, as you might guess, made from slabs of meat that are seasoned and dried. How you season them is up to you, but you always need salt. And there's two ways to season it, and you can dunk everything into a very, very flavorful brine, or you can dry salt it with seasonings, and either way works. 
the cuts that I use in general are from the hind leg. Could you make jerky out of backstrap? I suppose you could, but it seems like a waste and may possibly be a crime against nature. So I wouldn't do that. Instead, use some of those really large single muscle roasts that you get off the hind leg of a deer or an elk or a moose or an antelope or some such. Why do you use a single muscle roast? Because you don't want sinew in your jerky. Sinew will not break down in the jerking process. And so what happens is as you chew it, the sinew will essentially jam itself in between your teeth and act as dental floss and stick there forever until you somehow surgically extract it. So sinew is bad. You need to remove it. And that's why single roast is largely free of that sinew, except for maybe on the outside, and then that you can easily pick that off. What you do not want to do is jerk multiple muscle groups unless you plan on picking them apart after the meat has been dried. Remember, sinew is bad. Could you use another cut? I suppose, but you still have that sinew problem. So that means rib meat, neck meat, shank meat, most of the shoulder is going to be no good. You have to be able to get a slab of meat somewhere on the order of a quarter inch thick and however big that you are going to make your jerky pieces. Now, the other question is, if you've got your hind leg that you're going to cut jerky from, what size? Well, that's, again, up to you. I've seen great, huge slabs. Um, Mexican machaca is like that, or carne seca. And those are typically not eaten as slabs. They're typically you peel some off and pound it and serve it with eggs or in a tortilla. And that's their deal. Normally, you want a piece about a half again larger than it's going to be when you want to eat it. So maybe two, three, four, five inches wide and six or seven inches long. And, you know, you want big pieces that you can have fun with. And nobody likes those little bits in the bottom because, you know, you can never get them at the bottom of the bag. You know what I'm talking about? Finally, there's the question of with the grain or against the grain. Different jerkies require different cuts. So if you're going to make South African biltong, which is the mother of all jerkies, and biltong is again, usually in large, big pieces, and it's typically wider. So you want to cut biltong more like a half an inch thick than a quarter inch thick. And the drying process is a little bit more challenging. So I would absolutely use a dehydrator or unless you have very, very hot, very, very dry sun, which you can get in the interior of South Africa. That is always cut with the grain. So you want to cut long pieces where the the grain of the meat, the strands of the meat are running the length of the piece of jerky, not across the piece of jerky. Now, the reason you do that is because biltong is made for very long, arduous safaris. You know, safari means a trek or a trip in Swahili, not a language spoken in South Africa, by the way. So it's there to chew on and gnaw and have fun with and just kind of distract you from the fact that you've been traveling for days and days and days. Good for long road trips. Most jerky and most of the jerky that I make is always cut against the grain. And the reason you would cut against the grain is because it's a lot easier to eat. If you have shortened the meat fibers by cutting it, when it's dried and seasoned, it will be much easier to bite off a piece and to chew a piece 
than if it's done with a grain. Now, different, you know, honorable people can disagree about this, but in general, most jerky you buy in the store will be cut across the grain. I will go into a full-on jerky podcast in some other date, but that should get you started in terms of what cuts to use. Next question I got from a woman in Iowa. She wanted to know, what do you do when you have freezer-burned game or fish? And freezer burn happens. It just does. And let me tell you a little bit about what freezer burn is first. Your freezer, whether it's a box freezer or a stand-up freezer, is a very, very dry place. And anything that you put into it must be protected from that very dry, very cold air. If you don't, then it will desiccate the exterior layer of whatever the thing is that is exposed to this cold, dry air. It's not harmful. It's just kind of gross, and it's bad texture, and it's not something you really want to eat. This happens most often, in my experience, with vacuum-sealed bags that break seal. So what happens is, you know, your nice vacuum-sealed duck or piece of venison or fish fillet somehow breaks seal in the freezer. Either something pierced it, or there was too much moisture, and it and it expanded and popped the seal, or you manhandled that package a little bit too much and got things loose. I mean, it can, it can happen for a number of reasons. But freezer burn happens even in a vacuum-sealed bag. What to do? So first thing is, check your freezer periodically. I mean, I'm assuming anybody who has lots of game and fish in a chest freezer is eating lots of game and fish from your chest freezer. So you're going to be in there all the time. What you want to do is if something has broken seal, pull it out and eat it. The longer you keep it in there through a broken seal, the worse it's going to be. Now, is it salvageable? Sure, it absolutely is. You can do one of two things. You can slice off the freezer-burned portion, which works perfectly well, or you can just braise the heck out of it. So which would you do? I had a set of venison shanks, which is an odd shape, and odd shapes tend to break seal more often. And they had broken seal. They were still in the bag, and they looked okay, but they were getting a little peaked in the freezer. So I decided that I would just pull them out and braise the heck out of them. That slow, moist heat, and the ultimate reason why I was braising them, which is to shred the meat. And I ended up shredding that meat and serving it with a Mexican mole and on a tortilla, and it was perfectly fine, and nobody ever noticed the freezer burn. And that's one option you can do if you're going to cook something in a crock pot or slow and low and cover it with a strong flavored sauce. No one's going to notice. The other option is to do some trimming. Freezer burn will eventually get to the core of the meat, but that takes a very long time. (laughs) Typically, it's only a surface layer. And this is an excellent way to salvage a piece of fish or a pheasant breast or a piece of backstrap where only the top quarter inch may be ruined. What do you do with that ruined bit? You can throw it into stock if you are making stock or broth because it's still fine. It still has pretty good flavor. It's just it has a weird texture and is kind of desiccated. Another good option, if you got a pet, feed it to the pet. It's, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with freezer burned meat. It's just aesthetics and flavor. So there's no need to throw it in the garbage. You can feed it to kitty or feed it to your dog or, you know, toss it in the stock pot. Next thing I want to talk about is venison ribs. Speaking of weirdly shaped things, uh, I 
don't always keep the ribs from the deer that I shoot. I do about 50% of the time. The other 50% of the time, I will use a little knife and cut all of the meat off of the venison ribs in between, sort of going back and forth and back and forth and pulling that meat off and then using that for the grinder. And that works very, very well. And that's what I typically do. And I do it with pork and, and, and that sort of thing. But sometimes you just want to have some ribs. And the first thing you need to understand about venison ribs is they are not pork ribs. They are going to be tougher. They are going to be a little problematic in terms of fat. So venison fat isn't the devil, but nor is it pork fat. So you have to understand that you want a little bit of that fat on your venison ribs. But I have seen whitetails with huge caps of fat on their sides. I mean, they've been eating too much of the farmer's alfalfa or corn or whatever, and they just get really, really fat. And that fat tastes fine, but venison fat in and of itself is full of something called stearic acid. And stearic acid is the same fatty acid that exists in chocolate. And we all love chocolate because chocolate is tasty, and one of the effects of that is it coats your mouth. And a mouth coated with yummy chocolatey goodness is a good thing. A mouth coated with hmm grainy venisony blah it's just it's it's off-putting in a major way. And the problem with that venison fat is it has a relatively high melting point. So crispy, piping hot venison fat like on the outside of a steak or on these ribs is awesome. Let it cool, and you get that mouth-coating feeling, and it's no good. So that you have to be aware of that. So the way I mitigate this is by keeping only a little bit of venison fat on my ribs. You have to know that you're going to eat ribs when you butcher the animal. The reason is because in a typical butcher operation, you're going to pull off a lot of flank meat. And flank meat's great. It's good for fajitas or on the grill or whatever. And... It also happens to cover most of the ribs. So if you cut that off and you're left with just the meat in between the ribs, you really have nothing there at all, and there's no point. You have to keep those layers of meat over the ribs, and that includes a little bit of fat, if you're going to have enjoyable ribs later. So cut them off right below where you cut the back strap, and then you have them as long as you want. I mean, I always cut that lower three or four inches off near the brisket, because, it, you know, you get these big sort of weird Fred Flintstone brontosaurus rib looking kind of stuff. And it's just bizarre. So nobody, it doesn't look right. And looking right is half the battle. If you put a rack of ribs on front of somebody that looks like a normal rack of ribs, people will tend to eat it. If it looks strangely unusual, like that, that bottom brisket bit still sitting there, you know, a civilian or someone not necessarily used to eating game is going to get all squinchy. And besides, it's just prettier. So what you do is you have to treat these ribs as their own thing. Now, what does that mean? It means that they are not pork ribs. Venison is red meat, so venison ribs should be cooked like beef ribs, which is to say you need to par-cook them. Why? When you don't have to necessarily par-cook beef ribs. I mean, anybody who's had Texas barbecue knows this. The reason is fat. Now, venison is going to have external fat, but it's not going to have internal fat. There's no marbling and there's no 
inherent moisture coming from within the meat and tissue of the ribs. It will all be on the outside. What that does is if you try to smoke it slow and low, you might get away with it if you've got a yearling or a young doe or a very young animal in general. Then you can probably get away with it. And if you do that, if you choose to take that route, I highly recommend you that you brine your ribs overnight. And my standard brine is a quarter cup of kosher salt. I use Diamond Crystal. And the reason I mention a brand name is because Diamond Crystal is cut differently from Morton's kosher salt, so that a quarter cup of Diamond Crystal is going to be slightly more salt than a quarter cup of Morton's. So I've never actually weighed it, but it may be 20, I'm thinking 22 grams per quart but I could be wrong. Anyway, it's, a, it, it's not an exact science in this case. So a quarter cup of salt to one quart of water. Dissolve the salt and then soak the ribs in it overnight. What that does is that allows the ribs to retain more moisture as they cook. So if you've got a button buck or a forky or a young doe or a calf, if you're, you know, I know my friend Kevin Kasawan in, in, in Alberta sometimes gets a chance to hunt calf moose which would be an amazing. It must be like moose veal. So that if you have that kind of special circumstance, brine them and then you can smoke them and they'll be perfectly fine. But for the rest of us who've got an older deer or an, a doe of indeterminate origin or, or something that you don't necessarily want to risk having a very tough piece of meat, par-cook it. So uh, my friend Steve Ranella, he pressure cans his ribs uh, or pressure cooks his ribs. And that's a perfectly good way to go. Uh, I don't really use a pressure cooker very often, so that's not my bailiwick. I will see if I can find a link to Steve's pressure cooked ribs, um, and I will put that in the show notes. But what I do is I will just slow cook them. I'll put them either in, if they fit in a slow cooker, I can do that, or I'll put them in a Dutch oven or a roasting pan with foil on the lid. And I braise them very slowly in broth or water or wine or beer. Beer's a good choice. How long? Until they're kind of sort of done. What does that mean? So at least a couple hours at like 300 degrees in the oven, maybe 275. You don't have to cook them very high. You want them slow and low. And you want them to think about being tender because the smoking process will inherently dry them out. And if you want to smoke your ribs, which I like smoked ribs, then you want them to be mostly cooked and so that they're only in the smoke for a couple hours. This is the way to do a standard buck or, or an older doe of any kind of species. Now, keep in mind, I'm talking about deer here and antelope. I'm not talking about elk and moose. I'll get to them. So finally, you can have whatever barbecue sauce or whatever flavorings you want. Um, I will have a recipe for Korean ribs and, and slow-smoked ribs in Buck Buck Moose, uh, so you can look forward to that. But for the meantime, just pick whatever thing that you feel like you want to use. It doesn't matter. It's all good. So finish them on the grill. So it's really kind of a production to do venison ribs right. You know, you want to par-cook them so they're tender, and then you want to give them a little bit of smoke. So now you don't have to plunk them in a smoker. If your grill or your barbecue uses charcoal or wood. If you are just doing gas, then it's just fire and you do need the smoke element. So you can grill them on a hibachi or, you know, if you've got a wood fire, then you can skip the whole smoking step because you just want a little bit of smoke. If you really want to cheat, 
brinum in smoked salt. So instead of a quarter cup of kosher salt, use a quarter cup of smoked salt. And that's a kind of a way to cheat and get a little bit of smoky flavor into your ribs without the actual smoke. Pro tip. So finish them on the grill because you want that fat to be charred and crispy. And I'll get into the whole concept of charred in a little bit. But you definitely, definitely, definitely want to get a little bit of caramelization and a little bit of char and eat those ribs hot. Do not let them sit. And if you do, then that fat will start to coagulate and it will coat your mouth and you will be mad at me. But if you eat them hot, you will wonder why you have not kept the ribs all these years. So let me move on to the next concept. I, I mentioned it a little bit a second ago, and that is the concept of char. Char is not the Maillard reaction, um, or rather it is the Maillard reaction taken to its nth degree. Now, what is the Maillard reaction? It's M-A-L-L-A-I-R-D. It's named after a French scientist who discovered it or who really quantified it because we've always known it. It is that caramelization of meat or of proteins, and it's that yummy brown flavor that we all love. So it's the crust in bread, and it's that crispy bark on a grilled piece of meat. It is, it, it's the yumminess. It's the browned edges on a overly fried egg. It's, we are hardwired to like it. Now, char is something quite differently entirely. Char is the browning taken to blackening. And it's different. The concept of burnt is a difficult one to wrap your mind around because it is very much like, it's hard to say, it's very much something that must be done in moderation. Too much burnt flavor, it's, it's, it's off-putting. You'll find yourself picking it off. Think about it for a second of where you will have tasted it. You'll taste it in one of two places, most likely. First place would be in backyard barbecue chicken. So everybody's had that chicken that was a little bit blackened. It's largely because somebody's barbecue sauce has so much sugar in it that it caramelized and then blackened on the, on the grill as the chicken was cooking. And we've all had stuff that's been really horribly blackened and you pick half of it off and that's no good. So that's not something that you want to eat. But we've also had it done perfectly where there's little blackened bits here and there. And it's delicious. And it's something it adds a, uh, a fiery, smoky, slightly bitter note to something that is otherwise more familiar to us. The second place that you will have tasted it is in the bottom of a really good pizza. The crust of a really good pizza gets a little blackened here and there. And it, it, it heightens your enjoyment of the pizza. Sometimes you don't even know it's there because it's on the bottom of the pizza crust and you're just sitting there eating the pizza and you don't notice it, but you say, oh God, this pizza is really, really good. And that's why. It's this concept of char. It's very, very big in Latin American cooking. It is in other places. And, and now chefs I hear in the American farm to table movement are adopting it as well. For one example, uh, my colleague Chris Cosentino in San Francisco, he has a fairly signature thing that he does with onions where he will char onions and puree them and then use a paintbrush to sort of paint a what looks like a tire skid mark across the, pa uh, across the plate. And it's delicious. It is, uh, it is a sort of a blackened sweet onion flavor that adds to an otherwise, you know, typical dish. That's one example. Um, but in Mexican food, it is a fundamental. 
And I've been doing a deep dive into Mexican food lately, you know, beyond chimichangas and tacos and stuff like that, to real deal Mexican cooking. And one of the things that you really need to understand is the concept of char. In Mexican food, you most likely have had it in a really good salsa. So if you've seen a good salsa that comes to the table, usually before everything else, you'll see little blackened bits in it. And that's because a really good salsa of that style, whether it's a salsa verde or a salsa rojo, they have charred the tomato. They have charred the tomatillo. They have charred the onion. They have charred the garlic. Everything gets blackened to some extent before it gets chopped up or processed. And it is transformative. I do a stew, and the stew is on the is on my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. It's called chocolomo, and chocolomo hinges on these charred vegetables, and and if you do it right, you char the meat a little bit as well before it goes into the stew, and it can be done with any red meat. It's typically done with <laughs> the losing bull in a bullfight, so uh, older. It's a perfect recipe for older deer, older moose, or older elk, and what you do there is you just you take it on a grill and you and you char over very very high heat pieces of it. You don't cook it through necessarily, but you want a little bit of blackening. And that blackening then gets mellowed out in the stewing process into this beguiling, smoky, slightly charred, meaty stew that you then top with things like radishes and cilantro and pickled onions and it's just a magical magical combination. It's it evokes something primal within us. We became us in part because of our ability to cook. That is a slightly controversial concept, but it's one that's gaining wider and wider acceptance within the paleontological community. Richard Wrangham wrote a, a great book called Catching Fire that details this in general. And it's it's a brilliant book, and I highly recommend you read it. But it's details like, well, cooking over fire, you know, the, the control of fire and the cooking over fire is what helped our evolution. The short version of it is burned and cooked food digests better and digests quicker. It's why if you feed uh, cats, for example, wet food, wet food's been cooked and it's easier for the cat to digest and so the cat can take a little bit more nutrients out of each bite and then they get fat a lot quicker so if you if you actually feed a cat or a dog for that matter a parasite free raw meat it's arguably going to keep them healthier than if you give them wet cooked food because it's it's their thrifty gene kicks in they store up more and more nutrients and then you know than they actually use because most of our pets are sedentary and 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 we are the same way of course you know the odd Flip side of this, there's a whole raw food movement, which I find wildly ridiculous, but um, that's another story. Suffice to say that that we are hardwired to like charred and burnt things in moderation. Uh, now, I can hear some of you saying, well, what about nitrosamines? What about, you know, isn't it bad for you to eat charred food? And like, well, yes, yes, it probably would be if that's all you ate. But everything in moderation, not only do we want this burnt food in moderation, we are hardwired to know that if it's too charred and too burnt, it's not good for us. And and we'd register that as taste, but there's also some health implications as well. So I highly recommend in whatever cooking you're doing, start charring your vegetables, fire up the grill, or you can do it over an open flame on a gas burner or under a broiler. You can do it in all of these ways. Get a little bit of char. 
be you know be brave enough to let things go this far and start with a little bit in a dish maybe it's a salsa maybe it's a stew maybe it's a sauce that you make but experiment with it play with it and i think you're going to find that it adds a, another layer of flavor in something that is otherwise pretty mundane one classic example of this is if you have salsa verde, it's basically a tomatillo and green chili and onion and garlic and cilantro sauce. It's widely eaten in Tex-Mex places and regular Mexican, you know, even just corporate places. You'll see that bad salsa verde has no char. It's it's okay. It's a sort of army green slightly zippy vinegary sauce it's okay but a truly good salsa verde one where all of the ingredients the onion the chilies the garlic everything has been charred that my friend that is a sauce that you are going to remember i dare you to give it a try now i want to talk to you about a different concept and this different concept is from a whole other part of the world and it is the concept of master stock. Master stock is a Chinese thing. Now, I've heard of it called old water in Europe. It's neither stock nor water. It is cooking broth that's used over and over and over and over again. So in the concept of Chinese master stock, things, meat usually, but sometimes vegetables and sometimes fish, are braised in this broth on a daily basis or on a weekly basis. And by doing this, and by continuously refreshing this broth with more water, with more meat, with more spices, you create layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of flavor within this broth that absolutely cannot be replicated in any other way. Again, every bit as transformative as the concept of char. So if you let's say, use a little bit of this broth that you cook. Let's say you make a lot of barbacoa, which I do. And what do I mean by barbacoa? It's it's braised meat with Mexican spices that is then shredded and served on tortillas or on tostadas or whatever. If you do this sort of slow cooking and then shredding a lot, save the cooking liquid. I keep it in a mason jar in the refrigerator and I make sure that I use it every week. And if I don't use it every week, I freeze it. And if you do that, you can keep a master stock literally forever. There are Chinese restaurants that claim to have, you know, master stocks that are 50 years old. And I don't know if it's true or not, but the idea is really interesting. It becomes a signature of your cooking, a signature of your kitchen, because you're going to make that broth whether it's for poultry or for red meats, slightly differently all the time. And those very small variations are going to build and build and build in this broth. And it's finally going to create a, a flavor profile that is uniquely you. And I, my advice, if you want to do this, do it with a crock pot or do it with a Dutch oven and have two going. Have one for red meats and one for lighter meats. So poultry is, is what I'm thinking of here, like chicken or turkey or grouse or pheasant, and then one for venison or, or something like that. And you might have a third one for pork or wild boar. 
the reason is because your flavors that you're going to add with each one are going to be a little different. And they you don't necessarily want to mix light and dark. You can. There's nothing wrong with it. You could absolutely do it. Except what happens is the dark overpowers the light. And if you end up using a chicken-based master stock on venison and then you want to go back to chicken, you've kind of mucked it up a little bit. So that's why I recommend keeping them separate. What you do to save your stock after you've braised, say, a chicken or a pheasant or a piece of venison neck or shank is, you know, you've got your meat and you shred it and then it goes into your taco or whatever dish you please you feel like doing. And then you take the broth and you strain it and you strain it through a fine mesh strainer. When you do that, you take away all the little debris and the bits and maybe you've got some spices in there and you keep it fairly pure. You don't have to strain this stock through a paper towel to get it super clear. It's not the point of this stock. This is cooking liquid. This isn't a clear broth. So just a strainer is good enough. And then you put it into a, a container of some sort, a Tupperware or a mason jar, and you keep it in the fridge. And it'll be good for 7 to 10 days in the fridge. But if you don't use it within then, then it's not going to be any good. Now, do you have to freeze it? You don't. But you have to cook it every week or so. So one other technique is to take the broth out and then boil it for a couple of minutes every four or five days. If you do that, then you're good to go and you can keep that forever. But don't let it get away from you. So don't go on vacation for two weeks and come back and like, oh no, my, my master stock's ruined. Have the presence of mind to put it in the freezer if you're not going to be there for a period of time or you're not, or you don't feel like boiling it every week. But I assure you, if you do this, you will notice a difference in the flavor of the things that you cook these pieces of meat in, and you will thank me for it later. I mean, it's one of the things I I, I, I wanted to do a piece for Hunter Angler Gardener Cook uh, a year ago or so called Why My Cooking is Better Than Yours. And it was it was about tips and tricks like this, but it, you know, I, I ended up not doing it because it sounded like a you know kind of a dick thing to to say, you know. Uh but I just want to, this is a very good way to, to give you those tips and tricks in a, in a way that you can use. And it doesn't, you don't need to have wild game here. You can do this with domestic meats. But if you add these little tricks like the flavor of char or like master stock, it will enhance your cooking in very measurable ways that will get noticed. You'll get noticed. So finally, the last topic I want to talk about is gear. Now, Ian in, Ian in Texas sent me a note uh, after listening to the podcast, and he said, well, hey, you know, I mean, this is purely selfish for, for him, but, but he wanted to know what kind of gear do you need to have a hunter, angler, gardener, cook kitchen? And I, I thought about it for a second. I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's – I, I – I seem to have a pretty normal kitchen to my mind, but and in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a very small kitchen. My kitchen, in case you didn't know, um, is 67 square feet, including the counters, 67 square feet. It's tiny. It's a galley kitchen. And I'm more or less the only person who can cook in it at any given time. So it's, it's a great kitchen for me. It's very much like a very small restaurant kitchen in that, Everything I need is all is just a shift of the weight away. You know, it's a bend of the knee, a, a reach. It's it's two steps maybe. So it's a very comfortable kitchen for one person who knows what they're doing, but it's not a social kitchen, and that's unfortunate. But regardless, uh, I just want to 
put that out there to say, that, hey, I don't have this big palatial kitchen. What that also means is I don't have a ton of super fancy gear. Now, I do have some, and it doesn't usually live in the kitchen, but what I wanted to go through today is what is the basic gear that I use all the time to make my food and and that you would do well to have in your own kitchen, no matter how big it is. First thing I would say is a sharp knife, a good sharp knife. And I would further say that you want a Western knife. The Japanese knives are very popular these days. And unless a Japanese knife has a Western bevel, B-E-V-E-L, if it does not have a Western bevel, it will be extremely hard for you to sharpen by yourself. Now, you can get a shun or, or some other Japanese knife if you really like them, but you're going to have to get a very special shun sharpener, or you're going to have to learn to sharpen on the very narrow bevel that Japanese knives have. And I'm not very good at it. You might be, and go for it if you are. Western knives, in general, are much more easy to keep sharp. Their steel tends to be a bit softer and much easier to sharpen by yourself. You need a good chef's knife. I use a 10-inch chef's knife. Some people use a 6-inch chef's knife. My advice is don't buy it online, or at least try it out in a place first. So a chef's knife is your is your main tool. It is your hand. It's my left hand. You know, I'm left-handed. It would be your right hand if you're right-handed. It is the chief of your kitchen. You will use a chef's knife more than any other tool in the kitchen, so it better fit your hand, and it better be sharp, and it better be something that you're very, very comfortable using for a long time. The second knife you'll need is a paring knife of some sort, a very small knife, something on the order of you know a three or four inch, just regular paring knife. Uh, I have some very old ones. I had some nice ones that are handmade by a friend of mine, and it just again, this is a good knife to have for you know little jobs another thing you're going to want is a boning or filleting knife or both fillet knives are better for fish boning knives are better for breaking down big pieces of meat other tools that i use a lot um, i love fish spatulas now a fish spatula is a very thin flexible spatula that has a blade in the front and the blade in the front allows you to really get down on the surface of the frying pan and flip whatever it is in case there might be a little spot that's stuck. They're also extremely good with the fish, but also anything delicate. I, I use them to flip tortillas when the when the kamal is you know 600 degrees. They're a great tool and they come in left-handed and right-handed and you need to get the one that is that fits your hand. So I had to special order a left-handed one because the 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 blade is angled, so you'll, you'll have to get one that is fits whichever handedness you are. Most of them, of course, are right-handed. Another tool would be a microplane grater. Microplane graters are worth their weight in gold. They are the cutting edge of grating technology. Um, and why do I like them? I like them because they are very sharp and they're very fine. So you can grate Parmesan cheese, or you can grate a cured egg yolk, or you can grate orange peel. Very, very fine, and the net effect just elevates your cooking. You get more flavor because you've increased the surface area per size of whatever it is that you're grating, and you know it's just a step up. It's a very simple way to elevate your cooking. Dutch oven. 
I live with my Dutch oven. It's it's that in my frying pan. I have a I have an all clad regular frying pan. It's all stainless steel and it's my workhorse. I've got them in two sizes and I love them to death. The Dutch oven, I have uh, I either use a Le Creuset or uh, I actually got one cheap on Amazon that was a Mario Batali brand and it, and that works perfectly fine. It's the what I'm talking about are these enameled heavy metal pots. Everything that I braise, everything that's slow cooked that you see on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook is pretty much cooked in a Dutch oven like that. They are easy to clean. They hold their heat very well. They can go in the oven. They can go on the stovetop. They're very versatile. They are a perfect birthday or Christmas gift because they're not cheap. But you, you know, mine is, I don't know, maybe 12, 15, 16 quarts. It's pretty big. So get one that's a little bit larger than you think you need because someday you'll need it. Other things, hotel pans. I bought these at a restaurant supply store and sheet pans, you know, like a baking sheet and regular hotel pans, absolutely worth their weight in gold. Steel bowls, steel prep bowls. I use these on a daily basis. You know, these are things that are very easy to clean. They're easy to keep sanitary if you're doing things like cheese or salami or other things where sanitation is extremely important. And they're they're indestructible. I've had the steel bowls for 20 years, and it's a one-time purchase. Other things would be hmm, wooden spoons. Wooden spoons are, again, uh, indispensable, and you want two different kinds. You want some that look like a spoon, and you want some that have a flat edge. And that flat edge is extremely important when you're deglazing pans. So why wood? Well, wood doesn't scratch metal, right? It's softer. So if you want to deglaze a pan, what do I mean by deglazing is is that let's say you've fried or cooked something, sauteed a duck breast, and you've got those brown bits and that are stuck to the bottom of the pan. Well, that's all flavor. The French call it fond, but it's, you know, it's basically yummy bits. And to make a really kick-ass pan sauce, you need those brown bits in your sauce, right? So you use this wooden flat bladed spoon to scrape the bottom of the pan to get those yummy bits off. If you used a metal one, you would ruin the bottom of your pan. That's why you need wood. Can you do it with a rounded spoon? Sure. It's just not as good as when you have a flat bladed one. And they're cheap. They're like $6, $10. So get a round wooden spoon and a flat wooden spoon. Fine mesh sieve. I have two different sizes and I've got a, a coarse sieve as well, but a fine mesh sieve Again, it's one of those little things that makes your cooking better. If you have a very high quality fine mesh sieve, it will, you know, be make your food finer. I mean, it, it sifts out more debris, and they're not that expensive. Um, if you want to make a smooth sauce, or you want to make anything refined or a clear broth, you need the fine mesh sieve. I could probably go on and on and on about you know the gear that I use, but those are really important ones. Um, other kind of things that are nice to have, uh, I've got a boat motor, uh, an immersion blender is what the, the official name for it. That's fun for busting up stuff in a stew or a pasta sauce. I don't use it all that often, but it's fun to have. I have a deep fryer, and deep fryers are also extremely good to have. The, the key to having a good deep fryer is a lid on it. And that lid keeps aerosolized grease from getting all over your kitchen and all over your walls. And if you've got paintings or pictures on the walls, the grease will settle on the glass. And it's just, you need a cover if you're going to do a lot of deep frying. 
you know, there's a number of different varieties out there. They're all good. Uh, grinders, you know, I've got sausage grinders. I've got sausage stuffers. I've got a sous vide machine. I've, you know, I've got the fancy stuff as well. But in terms of basic gear, that stuff will get you started. And it's not expensive. It's sort of very basic um, gear that any good professional kitchen would have. And it's something that will make your cooking a lot better. Well, that should do it. I mean, that's, uh, I think we covered uh, all kinds of really random and interesting subjects today on Hunt Gather Talk. And if you have other questions, I really want to hear from you. So drop me a line. Uh, I am on Facebook. I am obviously on my website, Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. And you can leave me a question in any of those formats. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. If you ask me a question, I will do my best to answer it either on the air here or in a private message just to you. Thanks a lot for listening. Again, I am your host, Hank Shaw. This is Hunt, Gather, Talk. As always, if you like this episode, I would love it if you either left me a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever, or if you could subscribe to this podcast in whatever format suits you best. It helps me a lot, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to listen to what I got to say. Thanks a lot. I'm Hank Shaw, and I'll talk to you next week.